Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. How do I pronounce this drug? Pal. Palforzia? Palforzia. Well, I've never heard it said. Um, I've been saying Palforzia. James Hamblin writes for The Atlantic. It's so funny. It, they just make this, you know, they, they actually wanted to make it sound high tech, you know. Palforzia treats peanut allergy. Last week, it moved one step closer to getting approved by the Food and Drug Administration. In fact, the FDA declared it a breakthrough therapy. What is it? What's inside of it? It's peanut flour. That... Like peanut? Peanut flour? Yeah, actual peanut flour. But they guarantee that it's pure peanut flour. <laughs> the thing is, this drug being made out of something you could find in your grocery store, it's not the craziest thing about it. And James, who is not just a writer, by the way, he's a physician, he can't stop thinking about this peanut flour pill, how it supposedly works, who it supposedly helps. The idea behind palforcia is pretty simple. Exposure therapy. Give someone a small dose of the thing they're allergic to. Retrain their immune system. In clinical trials, the company gave this drug to kids for months, and then they gave them a test. A peanut challenge, where they got kids in a room, you know, there's a, a doctor standing there with an EpiPen, and, we're gonna, and we say, we're going to give you just a tiny, tiny bit of peanut, and if you start to have any allergic reaction, like any wheezing or coughing or anything at all, we'll stop. So you're literally sitting there, you're just taking like one little nibble one, of a peanut. Yeah, they're giving you a tiny controlled amounts and measuring what level people can tolerate. And that test, the people who'd been taking palforzia, the peanut flour pill, did better. They were much more likely to be able to tolerate the whole two peanuts. So at first, the results of this experiment sound great. But then when you went back and looked and you asked those people, okay, over the course of the last year while you've been taking this drug, <laughs> did you have to use the EpiPen or go to the hospital or have a severe allergic reaction at any point? And out in the real world, the group that was taking the pill had many, many more issues over the course of the year. And ultimately that is what you, are, you, you, know, you care about. Let me just sum all this up. Palforzia is a drug made out of something you could pick up in the bulk food aisle. It's meant to reduce the frequency and severity of allergic reactions. But actually, it might not do that at all. And there's one more thing, the price tag. It's estimated it'll be around 4000 bucks a year. And you'd have to be on it every year for the rest of your life, as far as we know. All of this has James asking, what kind of breakthrough is this breakthrough peanut therapy anyway? Today on the show, looking beyond pharmaceutical sticker shock. We've all gotten pretty used to politicians saying they're going to rein in prescription drug costs. Today, James Hamblin is going to tell a story about why that's so hard. The story of Palforzia. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. 
First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Before we get into the weeds over this peanut pill and how it got slapped with such a massive price tag, we've got to talk about the pharmaceutical market more generally. Because James says, when people like you and me think about cost, we think about it in a really different way than a drug company would. Yeah, it's a market almost unlike anything that else that exists because when a car costs $60,000, the company will say, yeah, it takes us a lot to produce, but basically we're making a luxury car to fit our luxury market, and that's what the market will bear. Um, and when a drug costs $60,000, the company uh, will say, well, we had a lot of costs going into making it, so we deserve to, you know, yes, the production cost is $10 a pill, but we're going to charge $60,000 uh, because it took us a lot of research and development. And there's no other industry where people say that they're just passing that cost on the consumer um, because there's no competition. It's an artificial monopoly. Yeah, like if you were buying a car and you're paying more for it, the assumption is it's a better car. Right. What you're actually getting is worth that much. Not, um, well, it took us a long time to invent this car and we deserve profits. That's a lot of how they justify these high prices. Well, let's tell the story of Palforzia from the beginning. How did Palforzia become a drug? So the idea of exposing people to allergens is extremely common. Like we do it with allergy shots. When people have a pollen allergy, they'll get a, an injection, um, which contains some of that allergen. And then their immune system is less likely to have a severe reaction in the future. So people thought, well, why can't we do this with peanuts? So they tried a peanut allergy shot, had a bad... Someone died during the trial, and they cut it short, and that kind of tainted the whole idea of a peanut allergy shot. So then later on, they were like, well, it's a food allergy, so maybe if we introduced it orally instead, you know, had a pill. Um, but it turns out that people with peanut allergies are extremely sensitive. So like one twenty-thousandth of a peanut can be enough to set someone off. So you can't just do this by handing, by saying, take one or two peanuts. I mean, that could kill a person. You have to have some sort of product that would be able to give people a very, very tiny dose of a small fraction of a peanut at a controlled amount. And it initially was produced just so researchers could do this in a replicable way. And they started, they did it with mice. They did it in like extremely small trials where people were able to tolerate a little more and a little more. Um, and then they decided... Let's see if we can make this into a product and do a proper clinical trial. The thing is, you could get what's called immunotherapy for your peanut allergy right now. Go to an allergist, slowly expose yourself to peanuts, see what happens. But it's just not a controlled experience the way popping a pill would be. It also might not be reimbursed by insurance, like a drug. So advocates and researchers got together and formed their own pharmaceutical company to create Palforzia. They called the company A-Immune. It ended up getting VC funding and going public. 
and they raised 160 million dollars and the only thing that they had in their portfolio is peanut flour pill uh palforzia wow so this drug was promising enough that they were able to raise a ton of money and build a whole company off of it yeah how much peanut flour is actually in one of these pills i don't know how much per pill but you're definitely talking about a fraction of a peanut so for a parent who's desperate the idea of a pill it's appealing because it sounds like it lets you avoid this whole other scenario where you're going to a clinic and no one quite knows what's happening and it's not approved in the same way so it's a way of kind of standardizing how you how you treat your child yeah i don't think anyone disagrees that this sort of product should exist um for at least for research and for early testing purposes it's a, it's a sound concept immunotherapy is something people have been doing for a long time it's promising for other allergies it's shown promise in in models in humans the question is just why should it cost thousands and thousands of dollars and should it be rolled out widely and marketed as a solution right now so I read one researcher who said all high-priced drugs are high-priced in their own way. <laughs> so obviously this one drug can't tell us everything about drug pricing. But I'm wondering, when you look at it, what does it tell you? That you ha if you have a company that has shareholders and has salespeople and marketers, they can each, at every level of that, system people can be doing their job and trying to get the numbers up and sell 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 increase the price as high as the market will bear and that ends up being where we really get ahead of ourselves marketing and advertising it's a it's a big contributor to drug prices it's a big contributor to what these companies are investing in and then it is what makes things less than safe because it biases the information landscape. You saw this certainly, I mean, opioids are like the classic example. If there had not been marketing and advertising there, and that is what people are mad at Purdue Pharma about. No one says that OxyContin shouldn't exist. exist. There are use cases for it. And no doctor was going around thinking, just didn't just pop into their head, oh, I should just prescribe this really widely. You know, it, it got taken up because the benefits were presented disproportionately to the risks. Risks were covered up, um, and a lot of people had an incentive to sell a ton. And they really put their shoulder to the wheel with, like, the pain index that was in every hospital, and you had to really ask people about pain, and then we have a yeah. solution for that. Yeah. So they, they biased that entire process of how clinical practice happens. And the same thing stands to happen, I mean, on a totally different scale with a totally different problem, but with a peanut pill like this, which could have harms, it's the marketing and advertising. And we are almost unique in the world in allowing that. And it drives our prices up, it drives our usage up, and it skews our ability to see what is actually worth the money. prescribing and what is actually safe and beneficial. Hmm. When you looked at you looked at internal company documents, sort of estimating the cost of the drug and and things like that. Did it say anything about plans for marketing? Oh yeah. What did it say? Yeah, the quote was uh, compliant caregivers and uh, patients and parents living in fear of a severe reaction. So you have 
the phrase compliant caregivers to me implies people who we can send a drug representative in there to do what they call education. When they say compliant caregivers, they mean doctors. Yeah. Or anyone who can prescribe. Yeah. That they'll send people in and say, hey, we have something new for you. Yeah. I mean, I want to put words in the company's mouth uh, right now during this contentious time for them. Um, But generally, yeah, that is the approach. Doctors are the people they need to essentially sell their medication. And and a lot of doctors, are, yeah, they're slammed. They, they've been out of medical school for 30 years. They don't keep up. They can't read all the methodology in every paper in the New England Journal. Um, and they have this guy from a company who has who bought lunch for their office, and he says he's got a new thing for peanut allergy. And you haven't been able to treat peanut allergy effectively ever, so why not try it? it it's, it's not hard to see how it happens. When he looks at the cost of a drug like Palforzia, there's one more thing James Hamblin thinks about, the cost of innovation. One of the ways drug companies explain their sky-high prices is by saying they need money to do research, find new compounds. But peanut flour has been around forever. And besides, when it comes to innovation, most of that work isn't done by drug companies. It's done by the U.S. government. Something that I think a lot of people don't think about is how much the National Institutes of Health, funded by taxpayer dollars, gives out grants to universities to do basic science research to help understand diseases and help um, start to understand how we could do an intervention, how a, a, a therapy could work. And then all that pharma does is come in when they see a promising place that they could amplify and they fund a clinical trial and then do tons of marketing. You actually compared them to coaches, like college sports coaches coming in and like shopping for, you know, players that are going to put them over the top. Yeah, yeah. It's so much of what they're doing is taking, commercializing, monetizing, um, and jacking up the price on a discovery that someone at a university made based on with federal money. And then the major buyer of this product is Medicare government program. So kind of there's a middleman here and they're taking often credit for a lot of the innovation. They don't have a sort of lab out there that's just trying to solve diabetes and we're try- taking every possible approach. You know, that's that's academia. In Washington, of course, everyone's got an idea for how to bring drug prices down. Former Vice President Joe Biden wants to put a cap on prices if a drug is only made by one company. They're suppressing competition. And when they suppress competition, that means they can keep the the prices jacked up because they're the only game in town. The prescription drug prices are out of control. The drug prices have gone through the roof. If I am elected president, I'm going to cut prescription drug costs in this country by 50 percent so that we are not paying any. None of this makes James particularly optimistic. Democrats like the idea of negotiating with drug companies. In fact, Nancy Pelosi has a plan to do that. The idea is to sit down with companies where there's no competition for their drug and have a real fee if the companies won't negotiate. But you've worried that that might not work either. Why? Uh, I'm worried that nothing will work, but... um, (laughs) The criticism of that is mainly that you can't ever properly negotiate if you're not willing to walk away from the table. And if you're the biggest buyer of pharmaceuticals and you 
provide insurance to uh, tens of millions of Americans, then you can't just say, oh, we're not going to provide this vital drug. I mean, there are certainly drugs where there are competitors and it would be possible to kind of play these companies off of each other to drive their prices down and negotiate. But there are some times where that would not be not be possible. Maryland and Maine came up with another solution, which is let's have a panel that's going to review drug prices. And if they get too high too fast, this panel will somehow intervene with the drug companies, cut them off. It's sort of a version of what other countries do ahead of time. <laughs> they, ahead of time, they negotiate and they talk about, is this drug useful or not? Um, yeah. Do you think that will have any impact? You know, as soon as you get into uh, value-based pricing is what people want. They need, a, they need a way to say, okay, exactly why should we be paying $90,000 a year for this person to be on the drug? Does it, quality of life, outcomes, what is the value? And that's widely supported by policy people. When they tried to do something like that in Obamacare, people called it death panels or rationing or something, you know, what you're not going to pay for this drug because you're the one who decides, you know, if the $100,000 is worth an extra four days of my child's life or what these big, difficult, difficult questions. So, yeah, there are certainly going to be some cut and dry areas, I think, where they can do value based pricing, but it's it, it is difficult and people can politicize it real easily. Something else stood out in your reporting, which is he talked about how drug prices are actually a pretty small part of healthcare costs. Um, like, you know, the cost of drugs accounts for only 10 percent of the country's health expenditures and exorbitant drug prices, like 24 percent of people say they have difficulty affording medicine, which is small. But at the same time, it's become this buzzword. I I'm wondering why, if this isn't as big of a problem, if the problem might be larger, like the whole healthcare system, why have we all coalesced around this one issue? Yeah, it is the one area of healthcare where people know the are are more likely to know the costs. And big pharma has been something that people have kind of rallied against. But I I, I don't know. People like their hospitals a lot. People like their doctors. Other um, areas that you could target for healthcare costs are not as politically good as going after pharma. So. Yeah, I think pharma and insurance companies are tend to get a lot of the blowback right now. Yeah. Is it possible to fix drug prices without also getting your hands into all these other things, though? Like, <laughs> you're just shaking your head. No, I think it's just part of a systemic healthcare overhaul. That's where I don't understand, you know, that you can kind of do, you, you can work around edges and make some improvements here and there and get more people access. I mean, 24% of people not affording, not being able to afford a drug or having trouble affording medications is is concerning if you believe those are really, you know, necessary life-sustaining uh, medications. And that's something that people in a wealthy country should not have to worry about. But but anything you do outside of systemic overhaul, overhaul of the healthcare system, you are going to, you know, it's, it's going to be a push and pull tug of war indefinitely. James Hamlin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. James Hamlin writes at The Atlantic. He's also a doctor of public health. And that is the show. 
What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. One more thing before I go. Have you guys gotten your tickets to the Texas Tribune Festival? I'm going to be there. I'm going to be having a conversation with former Senator Jeff Flake and Wendy Davis, who is running for Congress right now. Don't wait for it to become a podcast. Just see it live. It's Thursday, September 26th. Go to festival.texastribune.org, get your tickets, and I look forward to meeting you there. All right, I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.